Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems with economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. Edward Lazier is a labor economist and founder of the field known as personnel economics. His research centers on employee incentives, promotions, compensation, and productivity in firms. In this episode, Lazier and Kevin Murphy talk about the legacy of human capital and labor economics at the University of Chicago, as well as Lazier's experience crossing from academia to the Council of Economic Advisors and back again. All right, today it's our pleasure to have Ed Lazier here to uh, back to Chicago, his true home. Uh, and it's a pleasure to have you here today, Eddie, and want to talk to you about your experience in economics, your thoughts on Chicago, your experience in government, and uh, how economics played a big role in all those different things you did. Okay, great. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's always great to be back at Chicago, and uh, uh, the fact that I spend a lot of time here is revealed preference that this is still a place that's you know deep in my heart and uh, for good reason it's a wonderful place and still is so you when you when you got out of graduate school you came to Chicago and uh, I think you were greatly influenced by the people who were here at the time uh, a couple of people that come to mind Gary Becker and, and Sherwin Rosen and what was it like coming to Chicago in those in those days when you first came out of graduate school? Well, Chicago was my dream job. So uh, even as a graduate student at Harvard, I uh, always thought of Chicago as, as really being the intellectual center of the universe, at least the economic universe. And uh, when I got a chance to come here, I mean, I, I took the offer within about three seconds of having gotten it. I wasn't a very good negotiator. Uh, but that's because um, what was going on in Chicago was, to me, really the heart of what economics was about. And the reason was, you know, in those days you had the greats like Stigler and Friedman and Becker, of course, um, who were, to my mind, the people who thought most carefully about how economics could be helpful in explaining the real world. Uh, they were theorists, but at the same time, theorists who were always thinking about the empirical implications of everything they did, and they believed in economics. To them, economics was not a game. It was something that was genuine, it was real, uh, it was what the world was about. And that's, I wanted to get more of that. I mean, I believed that even coming here, but I wanted to get more of it. And, and uh, having those three, and of course you mentioned Sherwin, who was my teacher and really my great mentor. Uh, he came a couple of years later. But um, uh, you know, having those three and then all the others, uh, of course, uh, who came, Bob Lucas came uh, the same year I did and uh, uh, a number of others. Um, it was just uh, you know, an amazing place. Jim Heckman was here as a young guy. Um, Terrific place, amazing place, really. Now, I mean, we've heard a lot from people I've talked to about um, Friedman and Becker and the influence they had. Uh, you mentioned Sherwin Rosen, and I, I know you were influenced a lot by Sherwin, and, and I th believe, like you said, you actually got to know Sherwin before you even came here because he had visited Harvard, I think, during the time when you were, when you were uh, a graduate student. Um, what is it about Sherwin in particular that you influenced you uh, in terms of how he thought about economics and his approach to things? Well, Sherwin certainly had ingrained in him the, you know, the Chicago style. He was a price theorist in the truest sense, knew how to think about problems in a simple but yet deeply analytic way. Um, Sherwin was unusual in having a, a depth that most of the other people that I've run into in my career have not had. So sometimes you'd, you'd look at Sherwin and you'd, you'd pose what seemed to be a simple question, trivial question, and he'd think about it for a while and wouldn't give you an answer, and you'd kind of think, you know, what's, what's going on here? And people sometimes interpreted that as his being slow. And in fact, what was going on was he was thinking of that at many different levels. So there were layers to each question that he thought about. 
And I think Sherwin, more than anybody else I've ever known in my lifetime, really, was able to think through problems at just an unbelievably deep level. Um, the, uh, the other thing he did for me personally was he really taught me how to do research. So um, one of my first papers uh, was written with Sherwin and uh, kind of learning the style of what research was about, what it meant to, to do serious good work uh, and to do it at a level that was going to be interesting to the economics community was, I learned that from Sherwin more than anybody else. And that was crucial, absolutely crucial in my life in terms of uh, turning my career, really turning it around and, and, and getting me to be a productive researcher. So um, I, I would attribute that to, to Sherwin. But really it was his style of, of thinking about things. If you look at Sherwin's work, it's really amazing. I mean, not only has he considered a large spectrum of issues, but when you read it, you, you, you kind of think, you, each time you read a paragraph, you say, oh, wow, that's really neat. And then you go back and you say, you see each sentence of that paragraph has another thought in it. And, you know, you knew Sherwin. I'm, I'm sure you've seen that many times. But um, it, it, we, we, we used to joke about it. I mean, you know, you'd say, he'd say something like, you know, you know, you'd ask him a question like, what's a regression or something like that, something as trivial as that. And that's because he was thinking about it at a level so much deeper than the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I guess I always, you know, when I've thought about Sherwin and Gary and Milton, and I, I always, to me, Sherwin was always a craftsman, that he, the stuff he produced had an incredibly detailed, attention to detail element to it. It wasn't, you know, somebody who had a spark of an idea and then just sort of ran with that as far as they wanted to run and then stopped. I mean, he seemed to me like he crafted all his work. And you can see it in the way he did things. He took a lot of time. He didn't just write the paper of the day. He didn't say, well, geez, everybody's working on this topic. Let me write the Mick paper on, you know, whatever it is. He thought about it for a long time. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, uh, in fact, you see that in, it's not just in any one paper. He keeps coming back to a number of themes over and over again. You know, when, you know much of his life was spent on, on wage determination and just thinking about how uh, markets work to solve uh, the, that problem. Um, and, you know, you, you see paper after paper on that. And again, different aspects of the problem, different levels of complexity associated with it. But... Uh, when you say craftsman, I think you mean that in a good way. I, I know you mean it in a good way because I know that you, you're a craftsman in, in, in other respects. You have some, some really superb uh, technical woodworking skills, and so I, I know you're using it in that sense, and I think of him that way as well. It, with, he's, not a, he, he's not a journeyman in the sense of just doing the work. He's a guy who could produce really beautiful, highly crafted work that... Uh, uh, would be almost a piece of art. And yeah. when people go back and look at it now, they say, you know, it's just amazing that this guy thought about these things. Yeah, today's words, that would be artisan. That's, artisan. that's the word of the day these days. That, you, know, you don't want to be a craftsman, you want to be an artisan. Yeah. You know, artisanal <laughs> economics. But we'll, we'll leave that aside for the moment. Now, you're, you're, much of your work, you, you spend a wide range, obviously, in your research, but I think people associate you most with personnel economics. And... Um, how do you think about personnel economics? And, you know, obviously it's part of labor economics. What did you draw on from labor economics and what do you see as unique to personnel economics, the way you've done it? Well, let me, let me give you the, um, the genesis of it uh, and I think that'll explain how, what, how I think of it. Uh, I started out uh, in the economics department at University of Chicago, and uh, after about uh, four years or so, I moved to the business school. And when I started teaching MBAs, I realized that the stuff that I was teaching uh, to the MBAs in my labor economics class, which was a required class uh, at the time, was not particularly interesting to them. So stuff like you know labor supply and labor demand and the kinds of things that are the nuts and bolts of, the, of a basic labor economics text, and certainly useful and valuable, uh, were not of, really of interest to them because they weren't really thinking about this. They certainly weren't thinking about it from an academic point of view, and there's nothing they could do to affect labor demand, and there wasn't much they're gonna do to affect labor supply except for their own. 
So the way they were thinking about it is I've got to run a firm, and or at least they, they had uh, hopes of running a firm, and the question is what could we teach them that would be useful to them in organizing the workforce and dealing with the people in their firms? And so it was, it was really that push, it's kind of this implicit push by my students to talk about something that was relevant that got me thinking about what I think of as personnel economics. And uh, to me, personnel economics is really just applying the principles, the basic principles of economics, basic price theory, uh, basic microeconomic tools, coupled with um, some reasonably st sophisticated statistics and econometrics to questions that are pretty traditional questions for human resources people. So, you know, if you think about the kind of things that these guys worry about, training, turnover, uh, incentives, those are standard questions that you would see in any old style human resources book. But they thought about them in just completely different ways. And so I thought that if we tried to bring the tools of economics to bear on those questions, we could shed some light on those issues. Uh, and that's basically what personnel economics is about. And my work certainly is, is in that spirit. And those who have uh, followed and, and, and joined in, the, in that effort have done exactly the same thing, thinking about real world business style problems. So it's more of a field that's, that's geared toward what you might think of as business economics than kind of government economics. It's really you know, applied at the level of, uh, of operations and rather than trying to figure out how to adjust the economy. Uh, but uh, I would argue that for most students, both undergraduate and MBA students, it's really the, probably the most important aspect of labor economics that they can take with them because it's the stuff that most of these guys are actually going to be doing. Most of them are going to end up being in business and so they want to know how can this stuff apply to business. And I felt that we were shortchanging them unless we gave them something that was a, a bit more uh, useful to them. Yeah, but one, one of the characteristics I would think when I see your work in personnel economics is that it didn't go down a traditional human resource path of sort of looking at the firm solely from an internal point of view. You always thought about the world oh. in terms of the firm has its internal policies, but that interacts with the more broader marketplace. Yeah. And to me, that's what an economist would bring to the traditional human resource management approach. Because the tr traditional human resource management is very inward looking. Right. How do I run the firm as if I'm on an island? Right. And I think one of the things I think a lot of your work did say, well, the firm doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a broader marketplace. And the firm needs to take that into account, whether it's in designing retirement policies or designing turnover incentives or things about turnover, whatever it is, there's a marketplace out there. And as an operator of a firm, you need to take that into account. And I think, I guess I would credit you with having a lot of push in that direction, sort of blending those two fields in a way that an economist would find attractive. Okay, good. I, so I, I like that a lot. Um, uh, the way I, I put it, actually, I, I wrote a paper once um, called Economic Imperialism. And it was really mostly about Gary's work, as it turned out, because Gary was, without question, the most important economic imperialist in terms of expanding economics into other fields. But in that, just coming to your point, I said, well, what differentiates economics? And in particular, when we think about personnel economics, what is it that you do in personnel economics? And basically, you act like an economist. How does an economist act? Well, it does basically three things. First, you assume maximizing behavior. Even if the maximizing behavior is maximizing something that's goofy, you know, sometimes Gary would introduce unusual things into a utility function, but you'd always have maximizing behavior. That's what I was really talking about a couple minutes ago when I said, let's think about this in a rigorous way that standard human resource people would not think about. The second point, though, is the one that you're picking up on, and, and I think it's an extremely important one, and that's the notion of equilibrium. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, I remember having a, a, a discussion with a sociologist once, and I said, you know, w economics is the only field in social science that actually thinks about equilibrium. And he said, no, that's not true. And then um, 
eventually uh, went back and looked at the work and he said, well, I found one paper that did talk about equilibrium, but it was written with an economist. And so I think exactly what you're talking about here in terms of how does, how do the actions of the firm interact with the market and be, uh, in a way that's consistent with thinking about a market equilibrium is really uh, the essence of what we do that's very different from what anybody else does. I think it's, a, it's an extremely important point. And I think, uh, I would argue, it, it's what elevates economics to, to the level of being a, a, a serious science because we do force ourselves to think about how's the system going to fit together, how is it going to work, how are outside forces impacting the inside forces. And that's a very different way of thinking about the world than any other social science. The psychologists don't do it, primarily because psychologists are thinking about individuals and molding individual behavior and not how that is affected by others. Sociologists could do it, but they don't. That's not the style of their research. Um, uh, I think it's really uh, uh, to the credit of economists that that's how they thought about the world really for 200 years. I mean, if you go back more than 200, if you go back to certainly to Adam Smith, he was always thinking about equilibrium and how markets would uh, impinge on the behaviors of individuals to alter what they do and to affect what they do. Yeah. Okay. So at some point you decided, I've done a lot in academics. I, I'm going to actually go into government and <laughs> I'm going to... For, for better or for worse, you decided I'm going to go into government, and we'll ask you a little bit about your experience with that. Um, you went to work in the Bush administration uh, on the, heading the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, first off, what possessed you to do that? And I choose that word purposely. Um, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, I had the opportunity to do it once before and uh, declined. Uh, I didn't want to go to government. Uh, it was never my uh, goal in life. I always wanted to be an academic. In fact, uh, I pride myself on having come back to academia after leaving government, which isn't that common. Uh, and that's because academics is really my love. Um, but when it came up the second time, um, uh, I felt that I should do it for a couple of reasons. One was, uh, you know, the personal reasons. I thought, well, you know, at this stage in my career, spending a couple of years in government is probably going to be more interesting and more valuable to me than writing one or two more papers. Uh, but then there, there really was a public service aspect to it. Um, at the time, you know, I kind of thought about it and said, well, you know, if I you know, so your country's asking you to do something for them. And I actually did feel that that was an important thing to, to consider. And uh, so I, I decided to do it. I mean, these jobs are, are wonderful jobs. They're, it's a, an incredible privilege to have a job like that. But there's also a great deal of sacrifice that goes with it, financial sacrifice for one thing, but mostly personal in terms of family. You're away from home. You're disrupted from your normal life. And so it, it is costly. And um, uh, it was something that I, I considered pretty seriously before I did it, but I'm glad I did. And, uh, um, you know, just through chance, I was there probably at the single most important time ever uh, for the Council of Economic Advisors because we lived through the financial crisis at that time, and um, that was a big deal. So it was probably the time that the CEA was uh, most involved in, econo in, in policy, not economic policy, most involved in policy in its entire existence. What's the most important thing an economist brings? to the White House or to policy making in general? I would say um, hard-nosed logic. Uh, and, uh, and what I mean by hard-nosed logic is not that the other people in government aren't logical. They certainly are. And, and by the way, one of the things that, uh, just an aside, one of the things I discovered when I went to government was how brilliant, and I mean really brilliant, my colleagues were. It's not easy to get those jobs. The people who serve at the highest level in the White House are very capable people. And uh, these were just tremendously powerful thinkers. So it wasn't, wasn't that they didn't think hard about things. But the way economists think about things is really quite different. Um, we're very disciplined in our logic. I think the fact that we have to write down models, kind of coming back to what you were talking about earlier, when you solve for an equilibrium, you know, you say, where does this stuff really lead you? Uh, is it an enforced way to think about things that other people don't do? And uh, so I would find myself in staff meetings, you know, where people would make statements that were seemingly smart, but actually a little bit loose and not having thought these things through. And I would say, well, wait a minute, you know, what about this? And, you know, have you thought about this? And where is that going to lead us? 
And even when we weren't talking about any specific uh, issue, just kind of general discussion, I found that was the thing that I probably contributed most to those meetings. Um, obviously, you know, when we got into specific issues, uh, the economic way of thinking about things was very important. Um, many examples of, of using just basic principles like cost-benefit analysis, which to us is kind of second nature. You know, you always trade the costs off against the benefits. You ask, is, you know, is the present, expected present value of this thing returns greater than the cost of the investment? I mean, it's kind of a standard thing to do. Uh, most people don't think about it that way, but if you do think about a problem that way, and you say, okay, let's write it down. Let's kind of classify, um, the, quantify the benefits, classify those things that are benefits, those things are costs. How do they stack up against one another? That kind of just rigorous thinking about a problem is, um, you know, is unusual in the world, and uh, I think it's something that economists are very good at doing. I, I could get your act. I mean, to some extent, it seems to me you almost jumped ahead though, going to cost-benefit analysis because it seems to me one of the most fundamental thing economists brings to the table is thinking about the alternatives. That is, before yeah. you can even do cost-benefit analysis in a sensible way you have to specify what the options are. It's not enough to say, I don't like the world the way it is. Oh, there's a private market outcome, didn't come out the way I would hope it would. I gotta say, well, what's the alternative? And is that alternative better? And that's where the cost-benefit analysis comes in. And, but in my experience, one of the things I've found is that often people don't even think about the alternatives. And I think yeah. maybe cost-benefit analysis forces you to do that, but just that part alone, I think, is very important. Thinking about what really, what are the choices we have on the table, and a realistic specification of those choices. And I'll come back to what I mean by that in a bit, but what's your reaction to that? Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, so economists are usually thought of as being pretty conservative, and I, I don't mean politically conservative, although that's, that's probably true too. Even, you know, even academic economists, by academic standards, tend to be conservative. and and. Why is it that they're conservative? And I think it's exactly for the reason that you're just saying. It's that, that there's no free lunch. That everything has, has a cost. There are always trade-offs. And the, and the issue is specifying what the trade-offs are. Sometimes the costs are pretty subtle. That's why we use the concept of opportunity cost. It's not always the, the case that the cost just jumps right out at you. You gotta think about, think hard about what is it that you're giving up when you do something like this. And so, I think you're right when you say cost-benefit analysis kind of uh, actually jumps ahead because the, the first thing that you do when, when you're an economist, you point out that this, this stuff isn't, you know, isn't free. I like the way you said it. You know, you say, you know, it's, people always say, oh, well, you know, it just isn't fair or it just isn't. Whenever you hear anybody use the word just, okay, that tells you they haven't thought through it, okay, because that's kind of a way to, to sort of... Shortcut. To shortcut. It's to jump to the conclusion without giving you a logical argument, and, and usually it's wrong. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I agree with you completely. I think that's, that's one of the things that, you know, economists taught us. By the way, you know, I mean, we always attribute the, the no free lunch statement to Milton. Uh, and uh, I don't know if, it, if someone before him said it, but, you know, I always think of Milton as the guy who, who taught us that, that principle. But it was always inherent in, in his thinking, you know, I knew Milton for you know, 35 years, and, and uh, in all my experience with him, uh, he always had this, this notion that, you know, he'd say, now be careful. I remember, you know, that was one of the expressions he always used, and basically what he meant when he said be careful is, you know, you're, you're going too fast. You're not thinking hard enough about what the costs are. You're not thinking hard enough about what the trade-offs are and what you're giving up to do this, and you're assuming, you're making assumptions about what can be done without thinking rigorously about what, what actually uh, would be needed to make that occur. Well, I, I, continuing on these lines, it seems to me there's another part of it, and it's related back to some of the things you talked about earlier, which is once you think about an alternative, one needs to think about all the consequences of that alternative, not just the in, what you might call the intended consequences or the target consequences of that alternative. And, and one of the problems I often see people have when they think about policy decisions is they identify what's wrong with the current state of affairs. They identify what they like about some alternative, but they 
either don't or because it's a difficult exercise actually figure out what all the consequences of that alternative are going to be and and often there are consequences that you haven't even thought about and you can see the problems with the existing system because it's right there in front of your eyes and you often don't see well geez if i if i tweak this something else is going to happen um you know, that it's going to change other things other than just what I'm talking about. So I go out and I do something in the healthcare area. It affects the labor market. I talked to Casey Mulligan about, you know, the uh, Affordable Care Act. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, you have a policy designed to address an issue in, let's say, the healthcare marketplace. It has profound impacts in the labor market. And you need to take those into account. And that's one of the things I think economists naturally is trained to think about. Chicago economists in particular, people like George Stigler or Milton Friedman or Gary Becker, were very big on that idea that there were often wider consequences um, to policy changes. How did you take that into account in thinking about policy in the, in the White House? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a key point, and let, let me answer it at a couple levels. Uh, first, um, you're absolutely right in that it was fundamental to Gary's thinking, Milton's, free, Milton's thinking, and, and George's as well, which was why they were always wary about government solutions. And, and the reason I think they were cautious about the government solutions is that as smart as they were, they never were so self-confident to think that they could outthink everybody else who was actually involved in dealing with the consequences of the action. So, you know, the government comes in, does something, take health care, for example, you have the Affordable Care Act or something. You got people who are affected by that dramatically, who live their lives daily. Every minute of every day, they're actually thinking about how this affects their business and what that affects, what those effects are going to be. And they're they're taking actions that essentially try to undo the pernicious effects of those on their particular industries. Now, because they're thinking about it full time and those people are pretty darn smart, um, they're going to outthink. And there's a lot of them. And there's a lot of them, exactly. They're going to outthink the few policymakers who are actually thinking about this. And I think it's for that reason that, that um, the, you know, the, the greats were reluctant to turn things over to government and to, to have basically the notion that um, you know, government could fix the problem. The unintended stuff, you know, usually the, the notion that Milton always had was uh, government's gonna do more harm than good. That it's not that they can't come in and fix a problem, but the, the issue that you have to deal with is what are the other things that they end up creating as a byproduct of the, of the solution that they propose, and it's hard to simply think through all of that. So, so even if they're successful at solving the narrow problem they're talking about, or they're targeting, and use the language I used earlier, that doesn't mean it would pass the cost-benefit analysis, because that would have to take account of all the costs and benefits, not just the intended, call them the intended or target consequences. That, that's right. And, and you know, and, and to be fair, uh, you know, government policymakers are not naive. They understand that there are unintended consequences of their actions. The assumption is that if they think hard about these things and if they craft a good piece of legislation or a good policy, they're going to have dealt with most of those and done it in the appropriate way. And, um, you know, so they're doing their best. I, you know, again, I, I actually my opinion of government went way up after having, you know, served three years there and, and meeting these people who are career government officials who are actually spending a lot of time thinking about this stuff. They're, you know, these are, these are dedicated, hardworking people and they're smart and they're trying to do the right thing. But they're dedicated, hardworking, smart people on the other side of those issues as well uh, that are trying to do things that are making their businesses uh, most successful. And, and again, as you point out, there are lots and lots of those people. And so it's pretty hard to think through that. So um, uh, yeah, that's, I, I think you, you, you hit it right on the head. That's really well, the issue. I'm, it's no different than a firm that has to think about the marketplace and, and take account of the fact that the, mar the world's not gonna be passive and allow them to do whatever they wanna do. The w world is inherently looking out for their own interest. And, they're gonna optimize against whatever system I have. If I'm a firm and I set up a pricing scheme or a marketing scheme or a, 
whatever else it is, there will be people out there not looking to make me better off, but looking to make themselves better off. So, I mean, I guess the way I think about it is you want to apply the same model to government that you apply to people generally, that people somehow don't become omniscient, they don't become immune to people optimizing against you just because you happen to be in the White House. Um, nor do you become an evil character just because you happen to be in the White House. I, you know, I don't think one needs that. Um, and, I, and I see that. Now, as a practical matter, how do you take this into account? How do you design policies in the White House that say, well, I recognize our limitations. I recognize the fact that we won't be able to get everything right and there will be unforeseen consequences. What did you do and what, give me an example or sure. show me some general, give me some general ideas of how policymakers can learn from that aspect. This is not just a criticism of policy, but it's actually something that they can take away and learn from. Uh well, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example, probably the most important example of uh, something I, I worked on when I was there, and that was during the financial crisis. So uh, we all remember the financial crisis that sort of peaked in uh, fall of 2008. And we were very concerned about the financial firms failing. And uh, if you look at the history of financial crises around the world, we know that if the financial industry fails, it tends to create long and deep recessions. And so that was the obvious concern. The question is, what do you do about that? That's one thing to have a concern, it's another thing to figure out what to do about it. So um, one of the policies that, that we considered was, uh, as you may recall, it was called the TARP, Standard for, for uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program. And uh, what the TARP was about was trying to figure out, take some government money and then use that to somehow make the financial system better or more able to withstand the shock. And the question is, what do you do? And there were a variety of different ideas on this, all right? But in talking through that, my particular view, and I'd say the people who you know, thought the most like economists, were most concerned about having the government get too involved in the firms that they were actually trying to save. And so, um, one of the uh, things that we discussed was, you know, if we give these guys money, how much control do we want to have over them? And, and not, not to be too political here, but one of the big differences between the Bush administration and the Obama administration is that we didn't want control over the firms. The Obama administration actually did want control over the firms. And, and we didn't want it because uh, it kind of goes back to your, your uh, original point on this which is that you know, we were just worried that we could not think through all of the unintended consequences of our actions and that if we were to micromanage, if the government were to get in and micromanage these firms, we'd actually end up botching more things than we ended up helping. So the policy that we ended up going with was one of essentially buying preferred stock non-voting preferred stock so that we, the government would not have, the taxpayers, the government would actually not have a say in what those firms are doing. And you might say, well, why not? You know, you're using government money, you're using taxpayer money, why shouldn't the government have a say? And the basic reason is because our view was that it's the, in, the firms have the right incentives to survive, and if they survive and maximize their own profits, the taxpayer will do better by allowing them to do it than to have us get in and telling them how to do it. We just didn't think we had the expertise. I think we were right on that. Uh, the evidence is that the TARP was a very successful program. It actually ended up being more than fully repaid. Uh, but that's not the test. I mean, you know, the fact that the government makes money on something when it goes into the private sector is not the test of whether it's a good government policy. There are a lot of ways a government can make money on the private sector that aren't good for the economy. Um, I think that the real test was that uh, this was a, you know, a horrible crisis and we basically got through it reasonably well and you know, while we had a bad recession, you know, the economy survived and Wall Street doesn't look a whole lot different now than it did before the uh, financial crisis, which is actually good news uh, because that was one of the better functioning institutions that we have in the world. So, so again, so a recognition that you probably weren't the best decision maker when it came to how to actually run the companies. You might play an important role in financial support for those companies and making sure they don't fail and, and 
in, in, induce the cost of that failure on the economy. Um, but again, the recognition of limitations was really critical to that. Yeah, I mean, another example, just on this recognition of limitations, uh, kind of just triggered a thought, which is if you think about the auto bailout, which was you know very controversial, should go you know especially for a Republican administration, market-oriented administration. Uh, certainly, myself, Vice President Cheney, and actually President Bush were you know market-oriented guys. The last thing they wanted to do was go in and bail out the auto industry. Um, and the question is, you know, why do you do something like that, and what limitations do you place? And 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 the issue there is, okay, we know that the auto industry is in trouble, and and a large part of it is because of things that went wrong in the past, wage negotiations that got way out of control. These guys were paying, uh, compensating their workers at levels that were way above with what other competitive firms were doing. You know, if you compared, say, Toyota to GM. Uh, you know, that comparison just jumped out at you that that was not going to be a long-run equilibrium. So we had goals, but the problem was, how do you, you know, how do you tell these guys, do you go in and you actually tell GM how to run their business? Well, you know, I don't think so. I mean, the fact that GM was failing doesn't change the fact that they were still the second largest automaker in the world. You know, when people say no one's buying their cars, you kind of say, well, what are you talking about? They're the second largest automaker in the world. So, uh, we were reluctant to go in and again run that firm, but we did understand that um, that that didn't mean that these guys make perfect decisions, and that didn't mean that they make decisions that are always in the public interest. And so, keeping that in mind, what, what we actually ended up doing was when when the auto bailout, when President Bush did decide to bail out the auto industry. What he did was he specified, okay, this is going to be a bridge loan, and in order to renew the bridge loan. We want you guys to either comply with these three conditions, which were kind of higher level goals, or if not, tell us why you're not and make sure that you can make a case that justifies renewing your bridge loan. And that was kind of an in-between uh, way to go where you at least you thought about the, some of the conflicts but didn't exactly tell them how to do it. Basically said, here's where you got to get, but we'll, we're going to allow you guys to figure out how to get there. Okay, so I want to touch back to some of the things you talked about earlier and see your reactions to how that ties into this. And earlier you talked about the concept of equilibrium. And when I talk to my students at Booth about the importance of equilibrium, one of the points I often try to make is um, when you see something out there in the marketplace that exists and you think it's just completely stupid, there's usually a reason for it, and it's probably you haven't thought of it as opposed to, doesn't mean it's optimal, doesn't mean it shouldn't be changed, but chances are it survived for a reason. Um, it seems to me that that notion partly lies behind what you might call a conservative approach to policy, to say, you know, one of the things is the system we have probably isn't completely optimal, but it probably has some optimality to it. How did you take that concept, which it seems to me is critical for the Chicago approach, which is to think about the world from an equilibrium standpoint, and to think that you're not necessarily the smartest person ever born, that there's a lot of other people out there and there's a reason why things might exist, doesn't mean they couldn't be changed or shouldn't be changed, but you need to think hard about that. How did you take that into account in policymaking? Yeah, well, I certainly took it into account. Uh, let, me, let me go back to the academics a little bit and kind of give you a little bit of background that fits into that. So, um, you know, I spent the first half of my career at Chicago and second half of my career at Stanford. And uh, the Stanford is a, you know, it's a wonderful institution. Uh, and is probably best known in terms of economics for game theory, which it really was uh, you know, the center of development back you know, two, three decades ago. Um, and game theory has you know, been an extremely important tool in understanding economics. But the game theoretic approach is somewhat different from the price theoretic approach in, in the following sense, and it really comes to the heart of what you're saying. When you think about games, you know, you, you kind of structure a game so that you model the process rather than the outcome. You basically say, let's look at how the players behave. Let's see what actions they're taking. Let's model that, and then let's 
kind of grind through and see where that gets us. And sometimes it gets us to an equilibrium, sometimes it gets us to a different equilibrium, but don't really, don't really ask too much about what those equilibria look like. And the problem is sometimes you get an equilibrium from those games that are not optimal or not efficient in the sense that, that economists think about efficiency. Uh, and what I always would do at that point is I'd say, well, wait a minute, let's, let's think harder about this. I like the way you put it. You know, you said, when I teach my MBAs, I say, I see something in the real world. Well, let's turn that around and let's say, my model gives me something that says, gee, you know, this shouldn't be. And so now I have to ask the question that you just asked, which is, well, wait a minute. Let's think about what people in the real world would do to fix that problem. Are there ways to kind of get around that to fix that problem? And so when you're in government, I think what you want to always be doing is saying, well, you know, you can kind of come up with some convoluted structure, either formally in, in a game theoretic sense or even, even verbally by working through things and talking about how people are behaving in the real world. And then you come up with some solution and then you say, well, wait a minute, though. What are people going to do to undo that stuff? You know, how are they going to kind of get around those kinds of things? Or if we see something existing out there, you know, you see crises that come along, like the SNL crisis or the stuff that was going on at FDIC when we were there, and you ask, why is that stuff happening? Why are these people taking those actions? You know, this is the, it's not that they're stupid. It's not that these things are arbitrary. They're taking those actions for a reason. And if you don't understand why they're taking those actions, you're going to have a hard time creating a policy that's going to fix that problem. Um, one of the things that I, I feel, you know, I'm highly critical of Dodd-Frank, for example. I don't think that actually solved the problems that it set out to solve. And I think they failed to do exactly what you're, what you're suggesting that they should have done, which is if you think about Dodd-Frank and you say, well, wait a minute, you know, they're kind of thinking about the world as it should be or in a vacuum or, you know, I see a problem, I'm going to stick my thumb into that hole in the dike, you know. But they're not thinking about why that hole existed in the first place, you know, and saying, well, what caused that to be there? Why are these guys behaving in that particular way? And is this law going to undo that behavior or is it going to address that behavior? And I think that's, when you're thinking about policy, that's the key thing to do. And, you know, as I said, Dodd-Frank is one. You know, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act. I think that has some of the same problems in terms of uh, what it does to labor markets, like Casey's work, uh, you know, whether you believe the numbers or not, if you think it's overstated, I don't think anybody doubts Casey's, the direction of the effects that Casey's talking about. If, you, if you're an economist, you believe their incentives, and it's got to be right. So um, I don't think people have thought through that uh, sufficiently at the, at the government level, and they, they should be forced to do that. And that's, again, that's one of the roles of the economist in government is to force you to do that. Both sides, by the way. So, you know, if you look at the guys who served in the Obama administration, um, or the ones I know better, the ones that served in the Clinton administration, if you look at the Clinton Council of Economic Advisors, compare that to the Bush Council of Economic Advisors, we're a lot more similar than the Bush Council of Economic Advisors is to the political guys in the Bush administration. So, you know, economists tend to think about things in a similar way, even if they have slightly different ideological or political biases. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to Larry Summers about it, and he gives a not completely the same answers you give, but he definitely talks about kind of coming back to those core ideas in economics. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that because it seems to me, again, this links up what you just talked about in policy with what you talked about earlier in terms of research, which is you see a problem. And let's take, for example, you, you know, you have an area I've worked on a fair amount, um, illegal drugs. And I think, and you say, okay, I see drugs coming over the border from Mexico, or I see earlier drugs coming from South America. And to think about it, well, we need to shut off that path. A, a key thing, it seems to me, economists brings to the table is to say, well, what's the fundamental incentives that are generating that outcome? It's not like because those incentives are going to survive the change in policy. If people want to consume these drugs, it's not like if I cut off where they get them today, they're going to say, well, well guess what? I guess I can't get my drugs where I used to get them, so I'm not going to get them anymore. You know, it's just, you, know, you might think I've cut off the supply. Well, you haven't cut off the demand. And 
you haven't cut off all the other potential sources of supply. And, and I think one of the things economists in the economic way of thinking brings to the table is to step back to that much most fundamental issue and to say, look, what are the incentives on the supply side? What are the incentives on the demand side? And once you sort of look at the world from that perspective, the whole approach to policy seems to me changes dramatically because you, you can't focus on the specific because there are going to be diversions to other ways to satisfy those same incentives. If I haven't changed the incentives, it's very difficult to ultimately change the outcomes. I might change how they show up, where they show up, but again, it's the element of people working against me. It's not like you know, some just natural phenomena where I got a problem, I got a hole, I fill it in with dirt, and it's no longer a hole. Yeah. I have these people who want to dig holes, and if I fill in one hole, they'll dig another one. And you know, that's the big difference, I think, economists the way they think about it, they think about it, no, I got people who want to dig holes and filling in the holes just causes them to dig other ones. And you know, once you bring it back to why you're getting what you're getting, understanding the equilibrium you have, it seems to me to say, well, maybe I need to take that into account in my policy making. And to me, that's a big lesson that I think I've learned in terms of thinking about policy. And I just didn't know if there was, that was something that you thought about when you were in Washington. Well, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we failed at, um, but is certainly consistent with what you're talking about, was not so much drugs coming over the border, but people coming over the border, which is kind of the same problem, actually. You got to ask. There's a you fundamental know, demand. Yeah, you got to ask. On what, both sides. On both sides. And so the question is, why are they coming here? And when I say we failed, there, President Bush and and late uh, Senator Ted Kennedy crafted a um, piece of legislation that we thought was a pretty good piece of legislation. It would deal with with immigration. Um, didn't didn't get through, but. One of the, you know, certainly my my input into it was thinking about these things in exactly the way you were thinking about it, and and you know, and it, it kind of picking up on your uh, metaphor of digging holes and people wanting to dig holes. You know, basically the the reason for immigration is people want to work, they want to make money, they want to have a job. And the, if you look at the difference in income, we studied this actually um, at the time that I was there. You look at the difference of uh, between. A worker, a Mexican worker who's working in Mexico, and then as he moves across the border into Texas or California or Arizona, uh, how much does that worker earn when he makes that move? And the answer is he goes from eight thousand a year to eighteen thousand a year, um, and that's cost of living adjusted. So that's a pretty good pull. That's a pretty strong pull for people to come over. And so you have to say, well, you know, if you if you want to have legal immigration but not illegal immigration, you know, this was not anti-immigration. We were very pro-immigration uh, government, um, but we wanted to make sure that it was legal and not illegal. And the question is, you know, how'd you do that? And and the issue is, well, the only way you're going to solve that problem is at the employer level because if the jobs are there, if people want to work, and if employers want to hire them then the incentives are going to be too, too strong no matter how big a wall you build. You can have a 3,000-foot wall and it's not going to stop people. They'll come in and overstay their visas and figure out other ways to do it. Uh, so if you want to really deal with this problem, you've got to deal with the fundamental issue, and the fundamental issue is the demand for those workers. Um, so there are a variety of things we considered uh, in terms of policies like E-Verify, which already exists. Um, but basically, the, the problem was that employers had too great an incentive to hire people illegally uh, because the fines and the punishments associated with that uh, weren't large enough. Again, kind of coming from Becker and Stigler's work on crime and punishment, you know, if you, you can have penalties, but if the probability of getting caught is very low, those penalties aren't going to deter you from committing the crime. And that's essentially what was going on. So. Um, you know, we didn't figure out a way to stop those people from digging those holes, uh, you know, and that's basically what we have to do. Yeah, I mean, but that, you know, and this is one of the problems with immigration restrictions are a form of prohibitions. And one of the problems right. you have with prohibitions is when there's many ways to violate the prohibitions, they tend to be very ineffective. Right. And the trouble with alcohol prohibition is I can make alcohol 
in my bathtub. I can make alcohol any, just about anywhere. Actually, I believe you can because I've seen the stuff that you make. You make some pretty good stuff. So I, I don't think I can make it in my bathtub. No, but I'm just saying, you can, I mean, alcohol, I mean, and drugs are much the same way. Right. And immigrants have lots of ways of getting here. Right. And it's very difficult to have prohibitions work when you have willing buyers and willing sellers and lots of paths by which they can connect. And that's true in the drug market, alcohol, immigration. And so if you're going to have an effect, you have to somehow change those incentives. And you can do it by punishments. You can do it by offering more palatable substitutes, legal immigration, things like that. That is viable alternatives that some sense satisfy the demand on the two sides of the market, it seems to me. And, and again, thinking like an economist pushes you in a very different direction than maybe you would be pushed if you're not thinking in that kind of equilibrium, what are the underlying incentives, what are the market forces? Um, you know, and, and, and to me, that's, a, that's an important approach. Now, another area I know you've thought about a lot, and, and it's certainly an area that economists think about, and it's certainly economic literature, economic, academic work is focused on, which is taxation and tax reform. And I think most economists would agree that tax reform is a good idea, that there are various directions we'd like to move the tax system. But there are also huge political realities around that. And I know I've talked to you about this in the past. I know there are directions you think our tax code should go. How do we get there? What's, what is, is, there, is there a path toward a better tax system? Uh, and, and by better, I mean one that reduces some of the inherent inefficiencies in the system we have today. Um, I know it's tied up with winners and losers, who wins and loses, but you know we need to take that into account because that's an incredibly important part of the outcome. It's also an important part of the politics. It's important both in terms of what we want to accomplish and our ability to accomplish it. But how, what, what are the directions you think tax policy can go realistically that will make the system better? Okay, good. Um, you know, you use the word tax reform, Kevin, and, and that's one. That's kind of the common way of of stating it. Uh, I always get a little nervous when I hear the word reform because one person's reform is a, another. You know, is another person's impediment. And um, uh, I, I think what I would think about, and, and I, you're right. I had th even before I was in the Bush administration, I spent a year on a panel with uh, Jim Paterba trying to think about how we could make the tax code um, more efficient. There are really two aspects of that. One is efficiency in the sense that the typical taxpayer thinks of it, which is, uh, gosh, it takes me a long time to fill out these stupid forms. And that's not trivial. It turns out there's a, you know, if you calculate the amount of GDP that's lost on that, it's, it's huge. It's really enormous in terms of time costs and the accountants and everything yeah. else that you hire. So that's, that's quite significant. Um, but that's kind of a one-time fixed cost in the sense that if you eliminated that, you'd get the benefit of that, it'd be a one-time hit. Um, the, the more important aspect of fixing the tax code is really how do taxes impede uh, business activity, entrepreneurial activity, and, and economic growth. And, and the key here really is capital formation. So one of the things that we know about this particular recovery is it's been very weak in terms of um, capital expenditure, new capital investment has been very low in this recovery. It's been one of the major sources of the low growth. Question is why? And I would argue that a large part of that has to do with the tax code. We way overtax capital. And so you really asked two questions here. You said one is, you know, what do we want to do? And two is politically, you know, how, there's some problems. How do you get that to happen? So let's first, let's focus on the first just for a minute and then go to the second. Uh, it, virtually all public finance, all economists really agree that uh, we should have much lower, really in, the, in, in theory, the best tax on capital is zero taxation on capital. You should tax it at the source and you shouldn't be taxing capital at all. Uh, and there are a couple of ways to get there. These are details. Uh, you know, one is for the long run, you can just eliminate taxation. Rates could go to zero. Another is to have full expensing. Uh, again, in some sense, they're technical details. One is better than the other in the short run, but, 
but the, the basic point is to not tax investment. Now, the problem with that is the political one that you mentioned. And, and the reason is that it, it, when you're saying, look, the best thing that you can do for the economy is to stop taxing capital. That sounds like a giveaway to the rich, right? I mean, it sounds like a giveaway to the capital owners. And again, it's because people aren't thinking through the consequences of this stuff. So one of the first things that economists know when they're talking about tax is they talk about the incidence of the tax. Well, the incidence of the tax, you know, which is second nature for a guy like you, I mean, you, you know, there's no way you'd ever think through a problem without thinking through what we call the incidence. Is who really, really pays? That's who really, really, who's, you yeah. know, you, I write the check, but who really is funding that check that I wrote? Absolutely. That's the way I think about it. Right. And the question, you know, and, and, and for most people, that, you know, they just don't think about that. They figure if you write the check, you paid the cost. And you say, well, wait a minute, go back to what you're talking about at equilibrium, you know, earlier. And you said, wait a minute, how do markets kind of sort this stuff out? So if, give you an example, the payroll tax, that's the one that's the most common one. You raise the payroll tax. You raise the amount that employers have to pay to hire a worker. Well, what happens? Well, you know, money doesn't have to come to the United States. Money can go to other countries as well. And so capital has to get the same rate of return in Germany as it gets in the United States. If it gets in a higher rate of return in Germany, it's going to flow there. So if you start taxing the U.S. capital, what you're going to end up doing is sending money abroad until that uh, equilibrates. And what that tends to do, of course, is it lowers the demand for labor and it ends up causing wages to fall. And so one of the things we know, not only as a conceptual theoretical matter, but we know as an empirical matter, is that the incidence of the tax, the, per, the, the factor of production that actually bears the cost of most of the payroll tax, is labor. Even though the employer is writing the check, it's actually labor because the wage is just. Well, that's a hard point. It's not a point that, that sort of strikes you as completely intuitive, even if it's true. And so the, the role of the economist to, is to make clear and to articulate in a way that policymakers can understand that, look, guys, what you're doing is you're, ha you're hurting the workers. You're not hurting the capitalists. You're hurting the workers. And that resonates because that's where the voters are, and that's the right argument. So one of the things that I think it's, it's necessary for us to do, I always tried to do it when I was there, I still try to do it when I've talked to the public, is to show the effect of capital investment on wages. Look at the effect of capital on productivity. Then look at the effect on productivity on wages. Things are directly linked. I mean, that's not subtle. You put up a few charts and you can see it. You can say, look what's happening over there. Or look across different countries in the world, countries that have had high taxation, low productivity, they have low wages. The countries that have low taxation, high productivity, they have high wages. You know, you think that's an accident? You know, that's, that, that comes about for a reason. But those are difficult arguments to make. That doesn't mean we shouldn't make them. And, and just, you know, to conclude on this point, that was one of the things that Milton was great at. Uh, you know, Milton said things that were absolutely heretical. If you look back at Capitalism and Freedom, which he wrote, you know, what, four decades ago, five decades ago, uh, the stuff that he proposed in there, it sounded just nutty. You know, things like the all-volunteer army, school vouchers, negative income tax, all of those things are law now. They're all, people have actually brought those into play. And the reason was, he was very effective at articulating why this was good, not just for a, a small group of Americans, but for the broader group of the typical American worker and the American student in some cases. So uh, that's our job. That's what we got to do. It's not easy, but that's what we have to do. So it's educating the public and educating policymakers and making the case you think is a critical element of doing this? I do. I mean, I think, and you know, coming back to Becker Friedman, I mean, you know, again, I don't want to be too preachy, but I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that, you know, University of Chicago and Becker Friedman Institute in particular does a fabulous job at producing research. I mean, it's just unsurpassed. Um, but that's not enough. You know, you got to take that research and you got to translate it. Um, not everybody can read the technical stuff. That doesn't mean the technical stuff isn't valuable. It is valuable. But you gotta, you got to explain why this is valuable, why it affects policy, why it affects the real world. And it, it, you got to take that extra step and translate it for people. And uh, uh, it's hard. You know, not all of us are good at doing it. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I think that uh, 
you know, we need to put, put effort into that. Uh, otherwise, we fail. Uh, and, you know, if you want to follow in Milton's footsteps uh, or Gary's, uh, who were very good at articulating why these policies were or why these views and, 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 and um, issues were important to the, to the common man, uh, we got to do the same thing. So, yeah, consider this a salvo in that uh, in that battle. I right. mean, this is. I mean, we, and I agree with you. I think there's some very basic lessons to be learned from economics, and these are lessons that are not from a single paper or from a single piece of work. These are the core of what I think modern economics has taught us. And it sounds like from talking to you, that's what you took to Washington. That's what you think needs to go to Washington over and over again and also needs to go to the public so that they can be educated on some basic elements of economics that will helpfully lead to better policy for a wide range of people, not just for a narrow group, but really what's good for the country as a whole and hopefully good for the world as a whole. And uh, well, thank you very much, Eddie. It was a great pleasure to have you here today. and. Always a pleasure to have you here in Chicago, and uh, we want to keep you coming back because we need your help. Thank All right. You. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit BFI dot uchicago dot edu